This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Burger King. It's been a while, boys, since we had uh, lunch with the Too king. Long. Too long. Why are we having lunch with the king this week? Because it's delicious. It is delicious. What do you, what do you get at Burger King? I'm going with the, uh, I may be stealing somebody's order here, but I'm going with the sourdough king. Delicious. You gotta go sourdough bread. That's a standout. I mean, I, you took, took my order, but I'm going with sourdough, sourdough Philly Cheese King, only a mere 900 calories. Yeah, I feel like you guys are missing out on the Philly piece of this puzzle. Is that an honor to the Philly scheduling ordinance that's going on now? Oh, that's a good point. It's yeah, a good point. I, I like, like that. that. So Burger King made news this week because they have released a new sandwich, a new meal, a new meal offering called the Dog Perk. It is a basically a milk bone dog biscuit that is flavored like a Whopper, so you can bring your your service companion into the Burger King and feed them as well. Do you ever take Titus to Burger King? Yeah, totally unnecessary. Titus and I will roll into Burger King, pull up a pull up a chair. Two of us will sit down, have a nice little lunch together, wipe our wipe our little mouse, and then and then leave. So I love the concept, but in my my circumstance, not necessary. My dog, my dog George, a little too. A little too prissy for that. I don't know if he would, if he would, he, he wouldn't know what to make of it. But your dog, he needs some avocado toast. He would probably and, and white wine. He was, he's a very prissy dog. What about what about Toby? Well, Toby, uh, you, you know, he's he's formerly known as Tobias Rudiger Renzel. <laughs> so yes, he is. He's he, he's yes, gonna he he's gonna wow. strut right into that Burger King and have himself a milk bone. He's gonna love it. I think it's kind of a cool idea. I think it's I think it's funny. It's uh, in keeping with Burger King's kind of, you know. They're having a different kind of conversation with a tone and tenor for their audience, and I like I think it's kind of cool. All right, well, good for Burger King for uh, reaching out to a new audience. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm going to have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, we'll do a deep dive on the minimum wage. And believe it or not, there's actually some action on Capitol Hill. We'll take a look at what's happening this week and also when the next Congress convenes in January. We have a couple of guests stopping by to give us the legislative outlook for their states in 2019. Rob Carr from the Illinois Retail Merchants Association and Curtis Pickard from the Retail Association of Maine will stop by the pod. We'll talk about those stories and then wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line partners, Franklin Coley. And for once, not in the D.C. bubble, but live and in person, Mr. Joe Renzel. Yes, I've brought my talents to Central Florida. And the cold. And your cold, yeah. You brought cold weather. I think you meant the weather, yeah. Yeah. It's like a record cold down here this week. I don't know what you guys do. you got to fix that next time I come. We're working at it. Well, Joe, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the office. I know it's it's been a while since you've been here. It's gracing us with your presence. I appreciate it. I enjoy being down here, seeing you guys face to face, eyeball to eyeball. That, that beard's really coming in. How's, how's yeah. that? It's a winter beard, you know? Like you said, it's getting cold out there. Got to insulate. How does Mrs. Renzel like the beard? She's a big fan. She's a big fan. It wouldn't you, be there without. I mean, are, you, are you adjusting to the guest room? or? <laughs> All right, guys. Big week this week. Out of nowhere, kind of surprising about minimum wage this week and some some activity on Capitol Hill where we haven't really anticipated much or thought much would happen until at least the new Congress was seated in January. Franklin, what happened with our Republican friends in the House this week? They announced that they're going to hold hearings on a $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, And specifically, they're going to hold hearings at a $15 minimum wage to undercut 
the effects of the undercut the policy. Here's the title. Mandating a $15 minimum wage, colon, consequences for workers and small businesses. So we can expect that they're going to parade in um, a bunch of small businesses, a bunch of workers are going to pull down and all the studies we've mentioned in this pod in previous months, you know, the University of Washington study, the Federal Reserve study, I think it was out of Kansas City, um, that essentially found that there were negative impacts and negative effects of dramatic minimum wage increases. This is all in advance of, of course, the Democrats taking over not only the entire chamber, but also this committee, the Education and the Workforce Committee, and holding their own hearings at a $15 an hour minimum wage. So buckle up. Here we go. Republicans have the mic first. So so I understand, you know, I, I understand, you know, the principle of getting out ahead of it, setting the dialogue, making the other side now play defense, kind of play catch up a little bit instead of playing offense. But aren't we still kind of, if we're having the conversation, we always say if we're having that conversation, we're losing. If we're ha- we, we can never win on the wage conversation, even though we've been we've been banging our head against that wall for 30 years. Aren't, aren't we kind of, even though this, this feels good, aren't we kind of making the same mistake that we always say we shouldn't be doing? Yeah, it seems like it seems like a little prevent defense from uh, you know the Republican folks, as Franklin said, like right before they're going out the door. Incoming uh, likely chair of this committee, Bobby Scott from Virginia, has announced you know fifteen dollars is his top priority. You know, and, and again, it, it just kind of illustrates the narrative. And sure, you can have some economic arguments about the impacts in certain markets. We've talked about that before. Whether you know fifteen dollars in a place like New York City might be different than in Omaha. You know, those are all kind of valid economic points. But at the end of the day you know, this has kind of been in line for a while now. You've got the $15 movement. We talk about it ad nauseum. It's ongoing. It's already kind of infiltrated the general psyche. You know, folks understand $15 across the board. But, but I, I don't still, know that this really counters that point. I still go back to it stopped being an economic conversation a long time ago. It's a political conversation, you know, and, and to, to roll out our P&Ls and our math and our logic and our reason and all that kind of stuff doesn't seem to have much impact on this on this issue one way or the other. So I'm just kind of intrigued. I'm not saying they're wrong to do this. I'm just kind of, I don't understand it. When we know where the general public sits on this issue, we just saw another round of ballot initiatives in fairly red and purple states overwhelmingly in favor of increasing the minimum wage. Now, we can get into semantics about 12 or 13 or 15 or whatnot. But I'm just I'm just still kind of intrigued as to why they would enter into this conversation with well, the most American people don't agree with them. We always get pummeled on the wage side. No one no one gives our side of the, the issue any any credit or credence anyway. I, I get it in the micro. I just don't get it in the macro. It's a losing argument, and and you know the longer the the conversation argument kind of plays out, you know it, it's. It's not necessarily going to be a win for the business community. But if a conversation is going to be had, I I would say that that employers owe it not only to their uh, employees, but also their investors to show up and be a part of that conversation. And we we can't just cede the the conversation, the bully pulpit to Bernie Sanders. You know, so I agree with you that it's not a good conversation to have. You know, it's not a conversation we're going to always win or often win, but I don't think we can just give up. And I think that's what 
the Republicans are trying to do here is they're anticipating that one of the first things out of the gates in January is going to be they're going to give the bully pulpit over to labor, right, and to the, you know, to the Democrats and the Ed and Workforce Committee, and they're going to use that bully pulpit to drive home their message points as an opportunity to at least at least get some of the other side of the argument out there in the public domain. Yeah, it seems like a bit of a – I totally understand that, and I, I agree uh, to an extent. I, th- I think it's a missed opportunity, uh, particularly when you're talking about paid leave, right, like other other issues that this committee might deal with. Um, you've got an op-ed out this week from Rick Santorum, who, you know, obviously is a very conservative uh, talking head on, the, on, on CNN and other networks, um, former U.S. senator – talking about how the Republican Party needs to advance paid leave for the for the working family um, and make it part of their platform. Um, you know, this might have been an opportunity to for Republicans to kind of take that argument and make it from their standpoint, right? There's a lot of different policy proposals out there that, that different, differentiate from party to party. And employers have backed some, some different paid leave plans. Correct. And so where is the opportunity to kind of redefine it, as you were saying, Franklin, in your own words, you know, with your own witnesses, your own voices, uh, from a Republican perspective, uh, that might have been a more valuable opportunity to really set the stage. Talking to some folks this week, you know, and there's a, a school of thought where you know, in terms of playing chess on this issue. So maybe, maybe hypothetically, the business community writ large, the Republican allies, we rally and say, okay, we'll, we'll go for an 11 or $12 federal minimum wage on, and, and get these concessions, whether it's concessions on a voluntary paid leave program or joint employer, or maybe it's depreciation tax or play the, play the concession game and make Democrats be the ones to say no. And then frame Democrats as the one opposing this eleven or twelve dollar minimum wage increase in this package. And so there's there's school of thought around that. So maybe it's just a kind of a chess game. Yeah, it's I mean, in, sorry, it, it's interesting. You got a little bit of a dynamic that we can't forget. Where sure Democrats are going to take over the House and they might be able to kind of have a platform there, but you know they're not going to do that in the Senate. And so any real compromise that actually gets policy across the finish line is going to require kind of that back and forth and that give and take that you just talked about. Well, and the question is, are these hearings a minimum wage in the Ed and Workforce Committee about actually pushing towards any sort of policy outcome, or is it just politics, right? So that's the, you know, what you're talking about is going towards a good policy outcome, and um, I'm not convinced that that is even close to the intention of the folks in Ed and Workforce um, at this point. So, you know, at the end of the day, if you added up all the benefits, right, and the wage and, you know, even entry-level employers, I, I don't know what the national average is, but you would think that it is getting up into that, you know, 9, 10, 11 range when you combine everything together. So if you had a comprehensive bill that made some sort of... Uh, Went to 12 bucks over a very long phase in, protected and then, the tips, and, and gave you a bunch of other stuff on... Three to five days a year of paid sick leave and some other stuff, you know, like had some kind of entry-level entry level benefits, right? Um, you could see something like that kind of working and, and potentially if you get enough people around the table to open their ears and have a real conversation, you could see something like that potentially working because the market's already passed that in, in a lot of ways. So, But I, I don't think Democrats, that would be enough for Democrats to lose control of the issue. You could see a scenario where they oppose that. Absolutely. They want to run in 2020. The, Republicans have the high ground on that. Well, I think the bottom line is what you stated at the beginning. You know, they're going to have this hearing, and I, I would venture to bet that the Democrats are going to be able to control that message after that hearing, and they're going to be able to kind of use it almost as a, as a potential backfire 
in terms of what policies are actually discussed in this hearing and why aren't we going to 15? You know, the Bernie Sanders crowd is going to, you know, uh, embrace that uh, likely. And, and I think the public perception, uh, you know, following in the days following the hearing, you know, for whatever attention it gets with everything else that's going on. I think that was my point I was going to make. It, it seems to me very much of an inside baseball play because, you know, even a, a well choreographed hearing is going to get drowned out in caravans and Mueller and whatever the nonsense of the day is. And it'll be hard. So, and, and I'm not, I'm sure the Republicans are smart. Everybody's smart enough to know that it, it will not get broad attention and across major media and the general public and so to me it's very much an inside baseball game to staking out position so one last thing to kind of close this out the other thing to keep an eye on is you're right i do think this is the only people that are going to really be dialed into this are, are us and probably the people that are clicking on our podcast right it, it is unlikely to kind of break through and control the national cable news um, for any period of time but I do think to the extent that a national conversation around $15 an hour minimum wage is getting ready to occur, first by Republicans and by Democrats, I do think that trickles down into some of these states where we now have Democrat trifectas. And we have like in Illinois where we had uh, the governor-elect ran on a $15 an hour minimum wage. You now have Democrats control both chambers. You still have New Jersey with the governor and the speaker are screaming and hollering and writing opinion pieces that we have waited too long to pass a $15 an hour minimum wage. You know, we have other states in the queue. Yeah, New Mexico, Maine, you know, Nevada, Colorado, Mm -hmm. right? So this national conversation, even if it's limited and doesn't really control, it's not on the front pages of every newspaper and on the lips of every commentator and every major network, this conversation is going to be going on out there, and it is going to impact and affect these state-level conversations at the exact same time when a lot of states are looking to dive into this space. Good point. I said in the intro, we're going to be doing a deeper dive on a couple of those states here shortly. So, yeah, good conversation. So we're going to watch this closely. We'll report on this hearing when it happens, kind of uh, give our analysis and see what it means for not only the rest of the lame duck session, but for 2019. So as I mentioned before, we are joined today by Rob Carr, the CEO of the Illinois Retail Merchants Association, a longtime uh, personal friend of mine, a friend of the firm, and a industry leader for as far as I can remember, Rob. Really appreciate you joining us from balmy, warm Illinois. Yeah. Joe, great to be with you. I wish it was balmy and warm, but uh, it is not. Well, the... The climate here in Florida is a little little colder than than normal this week, so maybe we have a little bit of Illinois here as well. So we'll we'll try to adapt. So Rob, interesting election cycle. We have a new governor coming in in Illinois, uh, Mr. Pritzker, Mr. Rauner heading heading back home or to whence he came. Whole new political dynamic there. A, as my colleague Franklin Coley says, a Democratic trifecta now in the state of Illinois. That changes the political landscape a good bit, especially with regard to some of our, you know, PL business model issues, wages and benefits, and, and so forth. So I wanted to see kind of what you are anticipating when the gavel drops and the legislature meets here in January. You know, what is what does the terrain now look like for a couple of key issues? And we'll start with minimum wage. How do you see the minimum wage issue playing out, if anything, if at all, in Illinois this session? Yeah, Joe, given the fact that the city of Chicago is already on its way to a $13 minimum wage, 
um, and the um, uh, Cook County itself, which hosts Chicago, is also on a path to a $13 minimum wage. We fully expect to see a proposal here in Springfield uh, advance to push the minimum wage to $15. But this issue and some others has, have pushed, uh, have already started Democrats to, to question a bit um, whether or not a $15 per hour minimum wage is appropriate throughout the entire state. Um, so while we expect to see a push, I don't think it'll necessarily be just something uh, jammed in our ear without some discussion and debate. Does the fiscal, the kind of unique fiscal situation the state's in with, you know, somewhere near a $14 billion, whatever the number is, dollar deficit, you know, it's a you can only make up those kind of deficits one way. You don't want to be tagged as, you know, overly uh, not business friendly. Is that does that conversation kind of shade a minimum wage conversation in a certain way? It does. And we have certainly made that case. Uh, we've made that case in the city of Chicago and Cook County where we advocate for retailers as well. That, that you can't have everything here. You need to choose. Do you want to return financial stability to the state of Illinois, um, or do you want to uh, p- pursue all these other items, but doing both will be absolute killers? You're right, because you not only have the significant multi-billion dollar budget deficit that has been ongoing for you know a long time, but we also have a, 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 pen, a significant pension obligation backlog that we need to resolve as well. Um, and, and dealing with both of those will we'll take tax increases. We've been very realistic about that. that. That is what is going to happen. But then what we've tried to argue is you can't pile that on top of all these other cost mandates. Um, and we'll see what, how that resonates. Obviously, it's a little different in the Springfield than in the city. The city elected officials tend to not care too much about the consequences. They, they believe that as long as tourism uh, continues to thrive in the city, they'll be fine. But uh, that's not the case statewide. So we're hoping that that argument will resonate a little better. So to the extent, you know, that, that it was an issue in the campaign season at all for the governor-elect Pritzker, you know, we're, of, of all the things he's talked about, what's your sense? Where does this where does this issue rank in his hierarchy? Is it something he's been really adamant and forward about, or is it kind of back burner? Where where do you see his enthusiasm level for this issue? Well, he certainly uh, through in his campaign he, he pledged to support a fifteen dollar minimum wage, but uh, you know there are nuances to everything, and he, he also talked a great deal throughout the campaign about the need to work with all parties and to compromise and to and to figure out ways to make things uh, more acceptable and to work um, on a multiple uh, array of issues. He uh, made that commitment uh, to our board uh, when he met with us. Uh, He and I have had a couple conversations subsequent that uh, he's also indicated that. So while I do believe it is on his radar and something he will uh, not stand in the way of, I think he will is genuine about the fact of trying to work around uh, that issue and some others. Um, so we'll see once he takes office uh, how he and his staff uh, pursue that and, and conduct themselves in those discussions. My, my guess is that the, the budget woes, you know, will will take center stage and you know, we're not going to spend the first couple of days of session, you know, elevating the minimum wage issue would be my guess from a distance that but you have a long session most of the year and a long time for this stuff to play out. Correct. Yeah, we're January through May. Then you also come back typically for a veto session in October or November, depending on the year. Um, you know, I, I could see your point, Joe, but I suspect that given the fiscal situation, given the time that the Pritzker administration is going to need 
to uh, come to terms and get a complete understanding of the depth and the breadth of the fiscal crisis they're facing. Um, I suspect that uh, the progressives, in particular in the legislature, will want to push some of these issues we're talking about, like a minimum wage or a paid sick leave, uh, in the interim. So uh, there, there will be something of a battle there to try to get them to uh, take a breath. Um, there, there's already a little bit of infighting between Democrats. Um, you've got some progressive Democrats who are trying to push a pledge that uh, you're not progressive unless you agree and support these issues. And then you have newly elected Democrats, both downstate and particularly in the suburbs, where they made significant gains at the election, um, who are are a little skittish about trying to do all of these things at, at once. So um, th- there is some room here, I think, to maneuver. Rob, are there any other issues um, other than minimum wage and paid leave that are floating around out there that the state legislature, the governor may uh, pick up and push. I'm thinking in particular of scheduling, which is a conversation going on in the city of Chicago. Um, but are there are there some of these other issues that may pop up at the state level? Scheduling is here. Dark store is here. Pushing the retail felony theft threshold up to as high as 2000 or $2,500. Um, all of those things and many others are floating around here, um, and, and we would expect them to gain a bit more steam. You know, I used to joke 10 years ago that uh, – we were going to become the California of the Midwest, and I think that we are now the California of the Midwest, and in many cases may even be exceeding California. I expect a uh, you know on a similar front of data privacy and data regulation uh, bill to be seriously uh, proposed here and, and debated. Um, so we're going to see all of those types of issues and probably many more I can't even think of at the moment uh, coming to the fore. So we're going to have our hands full um, during during this session. There's a great deal of hubris. Um, running through the building in certain quarters at the moment. So we'll see how uh, the leaders and the uh, some of the other Democrats deal with that. And Rob, you you, uh, you asked about, you mentioned scheduling. That's, that, that's what I'll close on in terms of city of Chicago activity and potential activity in Springfield, the state level. How do you see the scheduling issue in particular playing out? Well, in the city, it's gone a little slower than uh, we had originally thought. Uh, Alderman O'Connor, who is the current mayor's floor leader, has taken control of the bill, and he's convened a series of meetings uh, to more fully understand the issue from the various stakeholders. So we have just begun those meetings with him. Um, as you're aware, that Mayor Emanuel announced he's not going to seek election, re-election uh, or a third term. Um, that has set off quite the scramble. We have something like 21 candidates for mayor at the moment. I'm sure that'll reduce a little bit as people get knocked off the ballot. But we also have many uh, races for the city council um, as, as the city tilts uh, harder towards the progressive side of the political scale. Um, so I, I think there will be uh, – I don't think there will be a lot of action prior to the primary and potentially um, up until the – or through the uh, general election for the city in April. Uh, but we certainly see, expect significant pushes on those issues uh, in the city once those uh, elections are passed. When do I get my Rob Carr for Mayor t-shirt? Well, uh, nowhere. Um, you know, my, my opportunity to do those types of things passed a long time ago, and the path for me to do that now probably runs through divorce court, and I'd prefer not to do that. I love my wife too much. Good for you. Good for you. One last question. I'll let you go. Uh, as you know, the, the name of our pod is Working Lunch. So when Rob Carr is stuck at his desk in Chicago or stuck at his desk in Springfield, what's your go-to lunch? Well, if I'm stuck at my desk in Springfield, it's typically a little cafe here, independent cafe called Cafe Moxo, uh, where I go and and, uh, get one of their many solid offerings. Unfortunately, they have fabulous uh, cookies. Uh, so I succumb to that a little more off, a little more often than I should, and then in Chicago it probably uh, comes down to uh, uh, boy that's hard one. It, it probably I, I, I mix it up a little bit in Chicago, Joe. I, I don't get stuck too much. There's a lot, a lot more around the office there. I picture you with a with a brat and old style. 
no. at your office in Chicago. <laughs> I am a sucker for Italian sausages and beef combos. There's no question. Rob, really appreciate you. We appreciate all the all the good work you do for for the industry and for restaurants and retailers out in Illinois. And uh, uh, appreciate you taking the time to join us. My pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the partnership and long friendship. Take care, pal. You too. Okay, Joe Renzel here. Uh, we just talked about Illinois uh, with Rob Carr. Now we're transitioning up to the northeast in Maine, and we're talking to Curtis Picard with the Retail Association of Maine. Uh, and we're kind of following our theme here of talking about states that uh, have seen a big shift with the last election and what we might expect from a policy perspective, particularly in the labor space, but also expanding out to other spots. So it should be an interesting conversation up there in the Northeast and leading the charge, of course, are all all our friends up in Maine. And and Curtis, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Joe. Absolutely. So you guys uh, saw a bit of a shift. You went from uh, right now, you got your Republican governor, the always eccentric... uh, Governor LePage there, and uh, your house, I think you're at a 73-70 split with maybe eight other independents. Maybe I got that right or wrong, I don't know. (laughs) And the Senate and a narrow Republican uh, majority as well. But now, what do you got up there, buddy? It changed pretty dramatically. Um, First of all, we had an open race for the governor's seat. So Maine has term limits, so Governor LePage was termed out after his two four-year terms. And that created an opportunity for a fairly competitive gubernatorial election, which was won by our current attorney general, Janet Mills, uh, who's been a longtime uh, Democrat and player here in Maine politics. Um, She's going to be Maine's first female governor, but she has a long history of of public policy uh, serving in various capacities in the state. Uh, She, you know, won that race. Uh, But more importantly, or equally important, in the House and the Senate, the House dramatically increased their lead um, in in terms of Democrats or Republicans in the House. Uh, I don't have a final count yet because there were still a couple recounts pending, but it looks like they will have between 88 and 90 seats now uh, out of the 151 with another three to five potential independents, with most of them caucusing with the Democrats. Um, So a pretty strong majority in the House. And then the Senate, which had a one-seat Republican majority, uh, shifted pretty dramatically, and now there's a 21-14 split, Democrats to Republican as well. So it's going to be a whole new world up here, something we haven't seen since uh, 2007-2008 of full Democratic control. Yeah, it has been a while, and you know, you and I have worked on several issues, and you've certainly led the charge for the business industry up there. Um, but obviously, Governor LePage was, um, you know, a, a special character to say the least, um, and did did some good things, and and um, but I, I think also kind of riled up uh, potentially the other side from a political perspective. And you've got a lot of kind of what I think you might reference as as pent up policy work that that might be you know leading the charge so in that labor space i know you guys dealt with minimum wage before from a ballot initiative perspective what are you seeing um you know on the horizon in terms of some of the responses that 
this new legislative body might have, particularly on wage or paid leave or even scheduling. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we do sense there's a lot of pent-up demand out there, especially on behalf of the labor advocates uh, to come back in this, this January with some pretty aggressive legislation. But I think even though we've had Governor LePage and a Republican Senate or, you know, a split in the House and the Senate to kind of mitigate some of these changes over the years, uh, what a lot of the um, advocates have been doing is they've been utilizing Maine's referendum process to push a lot of legislation as well. Um, so you know how it works. You know, if they can't do something at the federal level, they try to do it at the state level. And if they can't do it at the state level, they try to do things either via referendum or at the municipal level. And Maine has definitely seen that. Uh, thankfully, this last election, we were successful in defeating a referendum which would have enacted a new 3.8% income tax surcharge on individuals and families making more than $128,000. Um, and it would have given Maine the highest income tax rate in the country uh, at the lowest level. It would have generated about $310 million in new taxes. Uh, thankfully, we participated with a really broad coalition of business groups uh, to push back on that referendum, and we were successful in doing that. Uh, but more often than not, we've had more challenges in defeating these things at the ballot box uh, in previous years. You mentioned minimum wage, uh, which was enacted by referendum a few years ago, um, and the election cycle previously, the same group of advocates also tried to do a 3% income tax on people making more than $200,000 to fund education. And while that one did pass, we were able to repeal most of it, or at least repeal the funding source and provide additional funding for education without additional new taxes. So we, we've been able to be creative in the past in trying to mitigate some of these things, but you know, going forward with, with one party control, that's always a challenge. And the same is true, whether it's all Democrats or all Republicans, whenever you have a, you know, a one-party rule, it, it can make legislation more difficult. For sure. And, um, you know, and I, you mentioned the minimum wage ballot initiative. We talked a lot about that on this pod previously when it was going down. And one of the more interesting things we saw was really that kind of organic, the first time in a, at a statewide that we've seen that organic, uh, you know, bartenders, waitresses, the tipped workers, really coming out and, and exercising their voice, um, you know, to ask for that tip credit because it benefited them. And, and we saw that play out in Washington, D.C., too. So, you know, it's just interesting context. You know, a lot of folks might not pay as close attention to a market like Maine as they do, say, California or, you know, earlier we talked to Rob Carr in Illinois. But it seems to be turning more and more over the over the last few cycles into that kind of uh, guinea pig, if you will, um, up in New England of of new policies, um, you know, different kind of advocacy tools that you just talked about. Um, but it's a very interesting state to watch, and we're, we're wondering if the split happens. Do, do you get a sense of, uh, you know, after this kind of transition from a, from a legislative party perspective, are, are, there, are there conversations happening now about prioritizing some of those issues? You know, obviously, again, we talk about paid leave. You know, you've got neighboring states like New Hampshire, you know, looking closely at that. Um, I believe it got vetoed last cycle, might come up again, was a campaign issue. Do you think that plays out from a legislative perspective? Or are there any discussions, I guess, around prioritizing some of these issues, you know, as we deal with a relatively short legislative session in some of these states? Yeah, we're, we're hearing a lot of those types of conversations, um, without question, paid sick leave, paid family leave, 
uh, are going to be discussed, as will be things that we've been able to either mitigate or stop in previous years. Um, you know, and I know it's just not much of an issue uh, at this point, but, you know, we expect to see ban-the-box legislation. We expect to see things that would uh, ban employers from asking uh, an uh, candidate salary history, uh, those types of issues we've, we've certainly seen. And without question, restrictive scheduling will come back. I recall Maine was one of the first states where we had bills submitted shortly after San Francisco first enacted theirs. This was the earlier days of restrictive scheduling, and we were able to stop those bills, all three of them, uh, that year. We haven't seen that come back since, but we do expect it to come back. We've heard conversations about it. But you're but you're absolutely right, and you know, to, to put a fine point on it, one of the other challenges with using Maine as kind of a petri dish for or a guinea pig for some of these initiatives is a lot of times they're they're not even very well written. So you mentioned the minimum wage and the tip credit issue. You know, part of that was you know this group wanted to come here and raise the minimum wage, and nobody had really any objections to wanting to do some sort of increase to the minimum wage, but they threw in the the tip credit repeal in there, and that really did get the the wait staff and servers community fired up to push back on it and thankfully repeal that. And we're seeing that play out in other communities across the country, which has been fantastic. But it's unfortunate it got to that point because it didn't need to. Uh, but that's a challenge. Anybody can come here in Maine and put together a referendum, and it doesn't mean it's going to be written well or not have unintended consequences. And we've seen that play out quite a few times. Yeah, we see that play out in a lot of different um, legislatures across the country when you when they have to kind of go back and revert the will of the people, so to speak. And um, really, when you bypass that process, you, you kind of suffer a little bit from a policy perspective, certainly. Interesting dynamics playing out in Maine. We'll be watching it very closely. Uh, Curtis, I know you're, you know about our podcast. We do our working lunch here. Um, we got some good food out on the table. What is your go-to uh, meal when you're working really hard at your desk up there in Maine? What do you What do you like to bite into? Well, you know, the perfect Maine lunch, of course, is a Maine lobster roll. You can't beat it. You really can't. I've been up there a couple times and uh, had the pleasure. I enjoy it a lot. And, you know, we, we have well, a pretty good debate as, as to whether or not you should make it with mayonnaise or butter. I'm definitely a butter person. Yeah, butter or mayonnaise. That's going to be interesting. We might have to put that to a vote here in the office and see what comes out on top. I feel like Coley might be a, a mayonnaise guy. I'm not sure. We'll have to check in. But anyway, I really appreciate your time, Curtis. Um, the Retailers Association of Maine really leading the effort up there as uh, as we work on a lot of these different policy issues with different industry representation up there. So good friend of the firm. We really appreciate your time. Um, and, you know, best of luck. And uh, we'll, we'll talk again in June and, and do a little postmortem and see, uh, see how it all went. Thanks, Joe. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments that happened this week. And as always, we start with wages. Joe Renzo, what happened in New Jersey this week? Uh, New Jersey, we've got uh, Assembly Speaker Coughlin kind of putting out an opinion piece in the local press there. He's announcing that uh, he wants to have a bill to raise the state's minimum wage to $15 an hour, saying it's going to come in the Assembly from an introduction perspective in a couple weeks. And this is following the governor basically saying the same thing, stamping his feet and saying, hey, we need to get this done now. Yeah, they've all been doing that for the better part of this year, really. And uh, I mean, you know, For context, we had this exact same conversation a year ago at this time, saying a $15 was imminent. Yeah, and they uh, they went on some other policy priorities. Um 
and there's still some dispute on on some of the details as we've seen in other states whether they're talking about tip wage or how long the phase-in period is. I think those are the kind of standout issues that they're still debating. So let's switch gears to two other jurisdictions where minimum wage and paid leave are kind of intermixed, Joe. Big week in Michigan. What happened up there? Yeah, a lot of news coming out of Michigan. We've been talking about this coming for a couple weeks, but now it's come to fruition. We got the Republican-controlled Senate. Um, you know, they passed new legislation to delay the state's scheduled minimum wage increase and reestablish the tipped wage. You'll recall that this was an issue that was going to be on the ballot in November. Uh, the legislature, the rules in Michigan allow the legislature to act to prevent it from going on the ballot. So they passed the law. Uh, before the election, now they're going back to revisit it and, and kind of throw some tweaks at it. And the, the rub there is if it had passed in the ballot, and the legislature would not be able to as easily tweak the, the law. So by picking it up and passing, now they can go in and basically gut it, for lack of a better term. Yeah, that's a key point and, uh, and part of the kind of political calculation of this issue, you know, Bear with me here a couple details that I think are important for the listeners. Um, you've got this bill extending the phase-in period all the way to 2030 and increasing at a, a whoppingly rapid rate of 23 cents annually until it hits $12 in 2030. That phase-in also could be stretched out even further if the unemployment rate rises above a certain level. Um, I think important for our listeners also is the tipped wage. The, the ballot initiative would have ultimately eliminated the tipped wage in the state. Uh, now we've got this new law that's kind of reestablishing it and capping it at $4 per hour under the new language. So this all is a, is a package that's moving uh, out of the Senate. That's the news this week into the House. They did a very similar thing on paid leave, which was the exact same scenario in terms of the ballot initiative, uh, passing a law prior to the election. Uh, and now going back into tweaking it, they're they're lowering the required number of annual accrual hours for sick leave for for that employers must provide, and they've also instituted an exemption for businesses with fewer than 50 employees. Um, so this whole package kind of goes over to the House now. We're expecting it to be signed. Uh, we're expecting it to pass the House rather, uh, and then go into effect. This is all, of course, in advance of a Democratic governor coming in in January who would likely not allow these things to go across her desk. Uh, this was, for me, nothing short of audacious. I mean, this was a very aggressive play, and kudos to the Michigan Restaurant Association and Justin Winslow of executing. This is a high-risk high risk play, high-risk, high-reward play. To, to my level, uh, to, to my thinking, a very high level of, of, of political gamesmanship, you have to have the strategy in place, you have to have the relationships in place, you have to have the political capital in place, and you have to have the, the, the backbone to roll the dice. And the Michigan Restaurant Association, I think, had all of those things. So kudos to one of our state restaurant associations playing this game at a high level. Yeah, I think it's also important to note, you know, from a long-term perspective, it's likely not going to go away. You know, you're going to have a reaction um, regardless of how this moves through the legislature. You know, could be litigation. Could be litigation. Yeah. Could see it again on the ballot in 2020. Um, but you're absolutely right. You know, I mean, the, a, the ability a, to kind of pull this off has been In uh, a politically complicated too. state. This is not Alabama exactly. that they're doing this in. It's so uh, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm pretty impressed. Similar scenario at Franklin, but in a much lo- smaller scale, kind of minimum wage tied together with, with uh, paid leave in Cook County and Chicago once again. Yeah, the backdrop here is, you know, we, we've, talked about earlier in the pod, you know, uh, we have the dim trifecta in Illinois coming in and minimum wage is going to be a, a initial priority of that governor and legislature, uh, probably paid leave as well. And, you know, Cook County had gone at, uh, beyond the state standard already and put uh, a $13 an hour minimum wage requirement in place 
and a paid leave requirement. Now, the villages and the, the smaller suburb uh, communities had the option to opt out. A number did. In fact, a large number did. Yeah, some like, like two over 80% like or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So now we have the first of what could be a number of them opting back in. So um, it appeared on the, on the ballot in Wilmette Village. Is that how you pronounce it? Wilmette Village. Wilmette Village. Yeah. Um, so it appeared in the ballot there. Voters approved it. And so the village has decided to opt back in to the Cook County increase. I suspect there's a little bit of political gamemanship there. The, uh, they're expecting that the state is going to probably do this on their own, and they're just getting ahead of it, and voters approved it. And so we may see other jurisdictions do that as well. The thing is, if you're in Cook County, particularly if you don't know exactly, you know, you're straddling kind of the lines of these different communities, you need to be paying attention because there's probably going to be other communities that do this. You've got something happening at the state level. You know, just Illinois area employers and Chicago area employers need to stay engaged, stay in tune, and, and watch what's going on. Yeah, and public opinion was really on the on the issue here. They had, um, like you mentioned, that ballot initiative in the all across the county. It was a non-binding initiative, but it showcased something like eighty percent, you know, in support of both the paid sick leave and the minimum wage. So I think you're right. I think you'll see this spread. Um, kind of the reverse of what happened last summer in terms of all those counties opting out, they'll probably likely to opt back in. Folks got to pay attention. All right, so switching to paid leave itself, a development in Kansas of all places, Franklin. What happened in Kansas? Yeah, this is uh, maybe a a slightly surprising, but, you you know, so we had the outgoing governor there, uh, Republican governor, sign an executive order providing paid parental leave for all government employees. you know, and we've seen, we talked about it earlier. It's a little shocking that a state government wouldn't have that already. It's kind of odd, but. It's Kansas. Would, yeah, it's Kansas. Um, but, you know, we have seen Republicans like Rick Santorum, we mentioned earlier, Marco Rubio, obviously, and others, particularly those that come from kind of that social conservative background where they put kind of family values as one of their top priorities. We've seen them put paid leave to the top of their priority list. And, you know, in terms of like the, the, conservative orthodoxy, they will put family issues above other issues, family-related issues. And I I think this is kind of an example of that and shows that, you know, the issue is complicated and and there there can be support within that Republican caucus. And I think this this kind of demonstrates that. So it either politically either puts an end to the conversation for a while or kind of opens the door to a broader paid leave conversation with an incoming Democratic governor there. Do you got to feel guys one way or the other what happens there i think it certainly sets the stage for the conversation like you said and as we've said multiple times in different jurisdictions with the republican kind of platform being a little bit more flexible on this spot you really you know governors in particular when they're dealing with labor issues state by state republican governors i mean um are not likely to be as big of a backstop on this issue as they have been in the past and certainly you know kansas obviously from a statewide perspective is still leaning you know a little bit more right than left but when they come in with a Democratic governor, is that does that soften the ground for a, for a wider conversation in that market? It remains to be seen, but it's something worth watching. Washington State, new paid yeah. family leave. And Washington State will, sorry to jump in, will definitely be a conversation starter. So, the, you know, this is... So their new law goes into effect January 1st. Yep. And companies have to opt into the state program or so they have their own, correct? Yeah. And th- this is a big, robust parental leave program. So... You know, this is the first of its specific kind 
with a and pretty unique payment structure in terms of what companies have to do if they're in the state-run program, in terms of collecting from the employees and providing it into a kind of a quasi-insurance program, if you will. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's a different model than we've seen in other jurisdictions. Exactly. And it's sort of that, to draw a corollary between this and the, and the federal proposal, is creating that kind of retirement. So this is the portable benefits model that's being tested in Washington State in a way that really hasn't been tested in, in, in some other places. And so I think its success or failure is going to be looked to as a model by other states. So I'm watching this one. Everyone should be watching this one. If this comes off without a hitch and everyone likes it and it works and nobody's going out of business and you know all that, then I think you can see this model is probably going to be exported. So something to keep an eye on. And the last uh, little paid leave piece is in Albany County, New York. Kind of conversations on hold for a while there, right? Yeah, they were on pause till 2019 was the last news we said. They've, they've debated this issue for a while now. You know, a lot of businesses in that county are, you know, opposed to what their proposal. So we'll continue to watch it. But the fact that they're pushing a pause button is kind of enlightening, if you will. All right. So let's pivot to scheduling. Uh, earlier, we talked with Rob Carr and got an, uh, uh, an update on what was happening in Chicago. But there are a couple other major cities where the issue is on the move, most notably Philadelphia. What, what's going on there, Joe? Yeah, Philadelphia, they continue to debate the proposed Fair Work Week legislation. They made some minor amendments uh, this week to the language, not really addressing the overarching issues that the business community has raised. Um, it really does remain to be seen whether or not there's enough support in the council to pass the bill on to the mayor. Uh, the mayor's been lukewarm on the issue. I doubt he you know, outright veto, but he's looking for a compromise. Anyway, their next meeting is 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 for is, is scheduled for December sixth. It's really up in the air right now whether or not they have the support to put it to a vote. So we'll continue to watch it. And just up I ninety five in Boston. Yeah, good old Boston. We talked about this before. This is a little bit different because it's uh, it's a proposal that's really supposed to only apply to city contractors, um, but it's got you know it mirrors all the language that we've seen in Seattle and San Francisco and down in Philly, obviously, you know. But right now it's it's focused on city contractors. However, the language kind of defines that pretty broadly. Anyway, they heard testimony this week from the business community. I think folks were just kind of raising the flag on um, you know one size doesn't fit all in every market um, and the need for flexibility for the benefit of employees and, and the employers in the city. So we'll continue to watch it. Um, but yeah, they did have a, a hearing with testimony this week. And our arguments just got a little harder because like we've seen on these wage and benefit issues, when individual companies and businesses take steps in this space, it it makes our political conversation a little, a little more difficult. And we had a big retailer announce some changes to their policies this week. Yeah, H&M, uh, a fashion retailer, operates across the country. They have um, updated their benefits package specifically for part-time workers, which is kind of the interesting part of this. Right. Um, they're including paid leave, which other companies have done, um, but they're also guaranteeing a minimum number of hours per week. And they've come out with a, you know, a scheduling app that's going to be put in place next next year, I think was what they were saying. We talked about that Walmart a few times, a few pods ago about, um, you know, how technology can kind of address, you know, shift swaps and making it easier for the employee to kind of guarantee them some hours. But, but really, you know, a piece of the scheduling mandate legislation that we see across the country is that guaranteed minimum. The most troubling piece. Yeah, and that's the challenging one for a lot of operators in a lot of different industries. Um, and here, you know, H&M is saying, you know, we're going we to make this effort to do right. it. So kind of to your point, 
um, undermines the messaging. a little bit of a challenge with the messaging across the board. Although I would think that kind of one size fits all or does not fit all, you know, still claims the day. Two more issues, uh, kind of meaty. One on California on the uh, Private Attorney General Act, the PAGA. What's going on out there? Lawyers love it. Businesses hate it. I mean, this is uh, this is a nightmare for businesses to deal with um, as it relates to labor code violations. Uh, business groups this week initiated a legal challenge. If they can strike that down, it would be. It'd be people dancing in the streets. So why do they decide to go the legal route? It's really the only route that is open to them at, at this point in California and for the foreseeable future. Um, there's no political route to get a, a solution. So, Especially with know. the new governor coming in, it's just dead on arrival in his office. Yeah, and this is pretty unique to California in terms of allowing individuals to kind of bring suit, right? And usually that authority is limited to the state, whether it's through the attorney general's office or some sort of other enforcement office. California, huge market. Obviously, as you said, Franklin, the trial attorneys love this. It's yeah, a, it's a there, money there, maker for them. There are some other states that have it, but, you know, there are a few states where it is most prominently utilized. Mm-hmm. And certainly California and the laws in California allow for the aggressive use of this. Um, to your point, California's a big problem, big state, in, in terms of utilizing this to take a pound of flesh from companies. I think if you asked any company, any multi-state companies across the country, what's the one law in America at the state level they hate worse than anything? It's this pilot law. And there are a lot of companies that have been fired up about it for a long time. So it's it's interesting that they, with the, with the recent elections, the door is, even if the door wasn't already closed, it's officially closed mm-hmm. uh, with a new governor. And so... You know, the, the, the third branch of, of government is the, is the way they're going to have to go. Speaking of branches of government, Joe Renzel, uh, some activity uh, this week in the House, the U.S. House, regarding this, this tax fix. What's going on in D.C.? Yeah, uh, the outgoing uh, Republican majority, if you will, um, have dropped a tax package, you know, that's been long awaited. It addresses some much-needed technical changes to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that passed um, which was the big, you know, corporate rate reduction. A lot of other pieces in there. Um, notable for operators in the in the retail restaurant space is this correction of a drafting error related to the qualified improvement property provision. You know, I, I think that's a much needed. I think that's a bipartisan. You know, a lot of folks understand that that was a drafting error in terms of how much time um, you can you can take to deduct some of these expenses. The challenge is they've loaded it up with a lot of other things. Um, and while it might get some action in the House, is kind of an outgoing message. I think most Democrats in the Senate will probably prefer to deal with that when they have more leverage um, in the majority on the House next cycle. So we don't expect it to go too far. Um, but, you know, we'll continue to watch it for the next couple of weeks. To me, it is a perfect issue of why people hate the process and hate Washington. Here's an issue there. Congress clearly made an error. There's almost universal agreement the error needs to be fixed. There's an opportunity to fix the error. And one side doesn't want to do it because it may diminish their political leverage for something else. It's caught in the political spin cycle when there's almost general consensus in and outside the building this needs to be done. It was, an, it was an, an, a literally and, an accident. And the stakes are huge yeah. for particularly small business owners, like franchisees. You know, like this is, this is a huge deal, huge financial impact and hit to them. And even with all that, you can't get people to... Well, know, put down, it, put down the knives, and put down the swords for a second, and and build some consensus. And if they're not going to, you know, update and fix and and, and, and remodel, that that's not people that are being hired to do those remodels, and that's that has filters down through the economy. It's a big issue, again, why people why people hate Congress. So, 
Um, that's it for the scorecard. Busy week, even in a lame duck kind of world. Yeah, but continues to uh, get attention across the board. It's, uh, it's good for us, though. We get to watch a lot of things happening over the next couple weeks. I'm sure we'll have more next week. All right, another week, another pod. But it was nice having Mr. Rinzel like in, in live and in person. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know it added to the talent pool here, and now we can uh, get our clicks back up because I haven't been on in the last two weeks. No one Actually, our clicks have been. We had a record high number yeah. last week yeah. Yeah. and so, the week before. Yeah, yeah so, walked right into that one, didn't yeah, I? You did. Yeah, you did. Yeah, yeah. You did. Pack it up and take it back in the conference circuit, my friend. That's right. That's right. So now that we're we're uh, done with our, our Burger King, the other reason that Mr. Rinzel and I are big Burger King fans is why, Joe. BK Joe, man, got to get a cup of Joe. When they when they name the their door. coffee after us, well, you know it's good stuff. Yeah. It's it's robust and there's no BK Franklin. I mean, there's no BK ridiculous. Frank. If they serve yeah. hot dogs or something, yeah, it'd be BK Frank, but not so. not so lucky. BK Joe. All right, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks.